0: Our first week, we looked at uh, how Jesus invited people into the journey, and we contrasted it with our tendency to put in front of people before we're willing to enfold them the set of beliefs about the gospel and insist on this acknowledgement of those principles intellectually before we'll enfold people. In other words, our approach has been believe and then belong which is exactly not what Jesus did. Jesus' approach was, belong, join us on this journey, and in the course of it, you'll come to believe. And what that teaches us is that faith is not mere intellectual acknowledgement. Faith is more than concession to ideas. Faith is something that has to be embodied. It has to be experienced. I would argue it has to be come alive in us. Faith itself is a gift of God, why salvation is his work alone. And so we have watched over these weeks this journey that those first followers who responded to Jesus' call, come, follow behind me, that was the Greek word, and I will make you. And that word, poieo, just as review, meant I will do an intentional creative work in you. And we saw that in the early stages, there were pretty good times, teaching them to walk, exposing them to who Jesus was. Mostly at that point, observers. And it reached to this point eventually, as we talked about last week, where all of our journeys come to, and that's crossroads, critical crossroads, game changers. And we we saw one of those game changers in Matthew 16. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't begin by saying, let's get it straight before you start this journey with me. Who do you say that I am? No, you're wrong. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Okay, you're in. He didn't do that because he was calling them. Remember what Christ says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. There's this work of God in calling us that we don't often recognize because what we're aware of is our search, our hunger for God, our moments of decision. And we're aware of our role in seeking him, but rarely aware of God's role in seeking and drawing us. But all of you, who have come to faith in Christ, were on a journey to that faith long before you recognized it. God was at work, working in your spirit, helping you reach this point where you could declare, as Peter did in Matthew 16, you are the Christ. Two years into their journey with him, he finally presses them to this point. You are the Christ we have come to believe that you alone have the words of eternal life. John 6. Jesus started pressing who he was to people, and many turned away. They chose a different path. And he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave also? And they said, where else can we go? So there's a moment of resolve. It's like falling in love. Last week I told you about my falling in love with Vitt, and Vitt didn't hear it until we played it on tape. And I want to let you know my wife has given official approval of that version. And it's not like I can say, well, there was a moment where I decided I loved her. There was a moment when I recognized that I loved her. And then the next step was to formalize it by commitment and to pledge my life to her forever. I think there's strong basis in Scripture that that's exactly what happens to all of us when it comes to Jesus. There's a point where we just recognize there's no other place to go. And then in recognizing that faith, Christ calls us to confirm that faith, to formalize it. In Scripture, that's profession and baptism, profession of faith in Christ, and then entering into baptism as symbolic of leaving the old life behind and going into the new. So what we're saying is that there is both a call to commitment, but a recognition that we don't force that. That's a work of God. What we do is in the same way Jesus did, engage people on a journey where they can see and experience the living Jesus. But since the living incarnate Jesus is no longer on planet earth, how do people experience Jesus? By you and by me. And so in the same way as Jesus said, come, follow, follow me, I'll make you, our invitation as the body of Christ on planet earth is come, follow Jesus with us and be changed and discover. That's so critical that we want to be that type of people. But in allowing people to belong on the way to belief, we cannot let go of the obligation to call people to moments of decision. We need to move people lovingly in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And as faith is emerging, call people to that type of commitment. We've turned evangelism into a mass production Same way we make cars, we try to make Christians. Jesus did it heart by heart, life by life, in relationship. That's what we want to do here. Now, we've reached this moment where, in Matthew 16, we have this declaration of faith. Now we're going to jump forward to its final end, at least as far as we're going to look at it. And that is God transforming the disciples into that core of individuals through which he would transform the world. He would bring the good news to the whole world. And in Acts chapter 6, as they describe them, these are the men that have turned the world upside down. How did they get to there from here? Well, it's no easy road. There is one particular person who gets a lot of the focus in the Gospels from this moment on. And through his story, we get to see the struggle to be fully transformed into a vessel that God uses for his glory. And of course, that's Peter. I have often thought about why Peter gets all the focus. And obviously, he's the loudmouth. <laughs> when when the writers of the gospels think back to who said something in certain moments, Peter always had something to say. And when he got it right. Man, he knocked it out of the ballpark when he got it wrong. He went down in flames. But I believe Peter really is a model of the whole journey of all the disciples. Let me remind you that Peter wasn't the only one that denied Christ. They all abandoned him, as Jesus said they would. Peter just did it loudly and boldly. What we see in Peter is you and me and our struggle as well. So he comes to this point in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the very first one in Scripture to to make the full declaration that we are to confess as his followers. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we see Jesus' response to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. You see what I'm saying about the gift of spiritual sight? This wasn't revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What a powerful thing. Some people confuse this teaching to suggest that because Peter declared first, he is the rock on which Jesus builds his church. No one who heard Jesus say this to Peter thought that. Because in the original language, it's very clear. Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, but that is Petros. It's the masculine form of the noun, and it literally means a stone that you can hold in your hand. It's a nickname, sort of like Rocky. Anybody here know a Rocky? Then Jesus says, on this rock, and that word is Petros, it's the feminine of the noun, and that means bedrock, core foundation. So Jesus is honoring Peter for having declared the truth on which Jesus was going to build his church. Peter himself gives us the commentary. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone on which the spiritual house is built. And Peter refers to all of us in the same way Jesus referred to him when Peter said, all of us, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual household, built on the foundation, which is Christ Jesus. This declaration of who Christ is, is what the church is built on. Peter got it right. And so, in that sense, Peter is the prototype of all of those who at some point in their journey profess Jesus as Lord and Christ and become part of this living structure birthed by the Holy Spirit that is the church of God, you and I, living stones, part of a whole, Jesus, our foundation, connected, held together by the cement that is the Holy Spirit in all of our lives. Peter's the first. So having gotten it right and made that profession, you'd think from here on in it would be easy, wouldn't you? That's what we tend to think. When we finally figure out who Jesus is, we go, wow, it's just downhill from here. That was the hardest part. It's really just the beginning, and we see that in Peter. He no sooner gets it right that he gets the very next thing wrong. Jesus begins from that moment, having established who he is, to talk about what he came to do. Not to establish a viable earthly kingdom as they were hoping. It's to die in order to birth a spiritual kingdom. So now Peter's pretty bold because he's gotten something right. So he dares to tell Jesus he's wrong. Peter says to Jesus, No, this will never happen, Lord. You're never going to die. We have better plans for you. Look at Jesus' response. A few moments ago, he was saying, blessed are you, Simon, and your name is Peter, and you get a bunch of gold stars, Peter. And what's Jesus' response to him just moments later? Get behind me. Ooh, wow. You see, right belief does not instantly produce right thinking and right choices. It just doesn't. Peter demonstrates that with a passion. <laughs> I think there's something about this phrase when Jesus says, get behind me. That is more than what we have often thought of it. I think that what he's doing is he's obviously speaking to Peter as a metaphor. Satan is the great tempter. Peter represents a great temptation to not face the cross, which we know as it goes forward was a great anguishing thing for Jesus to deal with. In one sense, Jesus is seeing Satan at work through Peter, but perhaps speaking to Peter himself. I want to suggest that this idea of getting behind me is saying to Peter, get back in place. Get back where you're supposed to be on the journey. Remember what his words were to Peter? Come, follow, where? Behind me. Sometimes as Christians, we can get way too bold. These parts of the Christian church that think that we are in a position to demand from God. Jesus made it very clear. The journey is about you behind me and me leading (laughs) Peter's trying to take charge. Jesus is saying, Peter, get back in line. And was that not the sin of Satan, who aspired to put his throne above the throne of God? And is it not true that that's exactly our sin every time we step out from behind God and choose to dictate how our life is going to go instead of follow him? You see, there's so many ways you can look at this that are very applicable to us. We see Peter's up and down a little farther on in Matthew 26. This, of course, is the famous one. The thing about Peter was that I think every word that came out of his mouth, he really meant at the moment. Again, good intention and good belief doesn't always translate into power to make good on those commitments. So, we see this frailty in Peter. Good intention, but an inability to stay true to it. Let's just look at uh, verse 17. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat Passover? He replied, go into the city. You know the story there. The disciples went, they found the room, they prepared the Passover. And then verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said, of course, yes, it's you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks. This is my body, eat it. Then he took the cup, drink it. This is my blood of the covenant. They would sung a hymn and they went out. Now, this is interesting because he said, one of you will betray me. But then he turns to the others and says, this very night, all of you will fall away from me. You'll all fail the test of faith tonight. And they begin to argue. Peter replies, Lord, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I, I want to say that. Don't you? Lord, I'll never walk away. I'll always follow you. Right now, my heart wants that to be true more than anything else in the world. And I believe so did Peter. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And what does Peter declare? Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples, and you know what happened. Peter at least makes some effort at proving himself right, and he's the one that brought a sword, Try to make good, and then they all scatter. Let's give Peter credit for trying to get close enough to see what happened. That took, it took a lot of bravery. The other disciples were fearing for their lives, just in hiding. Peter at least goes outside, and he's staying nearby. And then we come to verse 69. Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said and he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I swear, I don't know the man. After a little while with those standing there, went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on them, and he swore to them, I don't know know the man and immediately a rooster crowed and then Peter recalled the words of Jesus before the rooster crows you will disown me three times and he went out and he wept bitterly it's huge it's so dramatic because it's centered around the events of the gospel the death of Jesus and because it's all focused around that moment Peter's failure looms large in our thinking rising statements of intent miserable failure now what we have is peter at this moment weeping bitterly utterly broken having denied christ completely what i want to do is flash forward to the book of acts jesus is gone who is it that begins to step up and assert godly leadership with the body it's peter who is it that preaches the very first gospel message and is so empowered by the Holy Spirit that thousands come to Christ through his preaching? It's Peter. Who is it in chapter 3 that walks up to a crippled beggar and with full confidence says, I have no money for you, silver and gold, but what I have I, I, I offer you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he did. It's Peter. Peter. Who was it in chapter four who when the Sanhedrin called them together beautifully defends who Jesus is and when challenged at threat of personal harm to stop speaking of Jesus said, I'd rather obey God than man. We can only say what we have seen and heard and boldly continued to obey. It was Peter. How does Peter come from this moment of utter failure to God? If this were today... Would we see any future for Peter in our church, on the board? Could a guy that failed Jesus that badly ever stand up and pastor and shepherd again? And yet here he is. What happens? Four things happen. The first is the cross of Jesus. No sin is so deep that God's grace cannot reach it and eradicate it and separate it from our spirits as far as the east is from the west. The cross happened. The second thing that happened was grace and restoration. And of course, that's in John chapter 21. For the sake of time, let me just turn there. After the resurrection, now Jesus finally has an opportunity to be with Peter alone. I'm wondering what it was like, Peter being around Jesus, until this conversation after the resurrection. Joy, but this awkwardness. I blew it, and here he is. How could I have any hope of ever being restored? Notice that it's Jesus that initiates the restoration. Hear him say that it's better for the shepherd to leave the 99 behind and go after the one see him come for Peter. And in the same way Peter three times denied him, Jesus brings him to the point of professing his love for him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. And then I've got work for you. Feed my sheep. And then he says it again. Peter, do you love me? I do. Feed my sheep. Do you wonder why it says Peter was grieved on the third time when Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you think the fact that Jesus forced three confessions of love out of Peter didn't bring him right back to that moment of absolute failure? And then if Jesus say to him, feed my lambs. That's really powerful. The cross, grace, third commissioning. Peter gets his own commissioning in this moment. You you feed my sheep. You're going to pastor my flock right now. But then there's the calling to the whole, all of his followers who had all abandoned him and who had all received grace, go into the whole world and make disciples. Then there's something really critical that happens that is the difference between you and I with our best of intentions and belief in Jesus and the actual ability to make good on that belief. Because you see, where we're left right now, the life of Peter shows us that none of us can make good on our commitment and belief to Jesus. All of us fall away when we try to do it on our own. And so what's the fourth thing that happens? It's Pentecost. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, The words of Jesus that we record in Matthew at the end where he says go and make disciples isn't the whole of the teaching. In Acts chapter one, we hear more of what Jesus teaches. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons when I'll return, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And then, and what's the next words? You will be my witnesses. Jump back three years to the very first moment when Jesus calls Peter, and his brother to follow him. What did Jesus say? Come, follow after me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now here we are, the final thing Jesus says to them, and he says, there's one more thing that will make you my witnesses, my fishers of men, my power in your life. On your own, you are powerless to make good. You will receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses, (laughs) see? See? I love this thought that as we've seen the journey that Jesus calls us to, what we recognize is the great gift of that journey alone, the calling is Jesus. The gift of faith and spiritual sight is Jesus. The gift of redemption is Jesus through the work of the cross. And the gift of enablement that allows us to live a transformed life is a gift of God by his empowering presence in our life. Salvation is... From first to last is God's work, God's gift. None of us boasts. We all fall short. It's a work of God. It's a gift from first to last. So just quickly, what are some things as we think about This work of God, this transformation of who we are to those who can say, as Paul did, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What are some of the things that we can see at the end of it? I just want to suggest a couple of thoughts for us. First of all, not just Peter, but all the disciples failed. And so will you and I. That's the first thing. All of us fail, which means secondly, right belief does not translate into right behavior. Third, God's grace in Christ is limitless. It can restore all of us from any depth of fallenness. Fourth, you and I, like Peter, are powerless to make good on our beliefs and intentions without God's empowerment. Five, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, which is God's gift to all believers, makes it possible for us to obey, not in our own, but with God's power. Some of you in this room need to just hear that because you're professing a faith in Christ that's intellectual. You're living for yourself. You're living in the flesh. And Jesus may very well be saying to you, get back in line. Six, salvation itself is the journey that Jesus calls us to. Now, this is the wrap-up of our whole series. We talk about the journey the grace and transformation. And what we recognize is that the whole thing is the good news. The whole thing is salvation. One of the things we've done to salvation is to treat it as an event. The gospel invites us into salvation as a life. Scripture speaks of salvation in three tenses. There's a past tense, you were saved. That's new birth of our profession in Christ. Scripture speaks of a present tense. Paul refers to us as being saved. And then Scripture also talks about a future tense of salvation when Paul says the time of our salvation is near. It's at hand, referring to the coming of Jesus. And this is important for us to understand. To be a gospel community is to allow the gospel and salvation to be the transforming message and and source of our whole life and journey. Let me just explain what the past, present, and future of salvation is. In the past, I was saved from the penalty of sin. Bible calls that being justified, justification. Christ forgives my sin, gives me his righteousness. I have right standing with God. That's what we think of as salvation exclusively. But there's more. I've been freed from the penalty of sin. In the presence, what I'm being freed from is the power of sin. Scripture calls that sanctification. That's the journey of transformation in an ongoing way that God's doing in our life, for our whole life. Like in the past, I was saved from the penalty of sin and am now being saved from the power of sin. In the future, when Jesus comes or when I go, I'm gonna be saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. It's all about the cross. It's all the gospel, the life, the journey. His salvation. Let's commit ourselves. Let's commit ourselves to moving people into relationships so that they too can experience a living Jesus, not just an intellectual idea of him. And in experiencing Jesus in us and understanding the work of the cross, come to faith in him. And let's recognize that that's just the beginning of the real journey. And let's be in that together. Let's let God be transforming us and changing us and using us. Let's be part of the people that God is still using to turn this world upside down. Only from God's perspective, that's turning it right side up.